so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Jonathan Rausch, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of a recent book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Today, we talk about the rise and spread of misinformation, and as well as how to navigate this epistemic crisis. Jonathan Rausch is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program at Brookings and the author of eight books and numerous articles on public policy, culture, and government. He's a contributing writer to The Atlantic and the recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award, which is the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Digital Public Square. I've really been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while because while you and I don't agree on every single issue, you nevertheless really helped me to be a better thinker and challenge me to honestly assess a lot of my presuppositions and the ways that I go about thinking about important issues like we're going to talk about today. As we get started, I was going to ask if you could tell us a little bit about your background behind your work at Brookings and what prompted you to write this book in the first place. Well, first, I want to thank you for having me on. Um, I don't know you personally. I don't know the podcast. But someone who's been an influence on me for entirely for the better is is Russell Moore. And so uh, he's no longer uh, with the ERLC, of course, but he's a, a very important and substantive figure. So I want to dedicate this podcast to uh, to him and to my gratitude to him, someone I've learned from. I started writing about social epistemology, how societies find truth, and how they do that in a way that is enhancing of peace and freedom and truth, way back with my book, Kindly Inquisitors, which is now almost 30 years old. And that period was the dawn of what came to be known then as political correctness. We started seeing movements like the idea that hurtful words are a form of violence. We also saw, we didn't have the vocabulary at the time, but one of the first great and still most severe instances of canceling, which was the silencing of Salman Rushdie by a global threat of murder all over the world. 
And I saw that. I thought the response to that was was weak. And falling back on the First Amendment, you know, freedom of speech didn't begin to do the work of justifying what I called in that book liberal science. That's our social system for figuring out what's true and what's not true and doing it in a way that's peaceful and productive. And so I wrote a book about that. It's called Kindly Inquisitors. Came out in 1993. Did a new edition with a new afterward 10 years ago. Went off to do other things. I was a advocate for same-sex marriage for many years, uh, for example, also a religious liberty nut. And then I realized starting um, after the election of Donald Trump and the rise of modern canceling and the MAGA-related campaigns against truth and the appearance of this new term post-truth, that we were in a new form of trouble, not brand new, but I realized I had to go back into these waters and understand what are these new attacks on on how we come to a, a shared sense of reality and how do we cope with them. And so here we are. Yeah, I know this fall, I've been spending a lot of time in my research and writing on specifically about how Christians can think about and navigate kind of the rising tide of misinformation and fake news. And of all the works that I read, often they end up kind of scapegoating in some sense. They'll say they'll acknowledge the problem that we have, uh, this kind of epistemic crisis that we're all facing in society today, especially with the rise of digital tech. But then they often blame the other side, and they tend to whitewash their own tribe's involvement in these issues. And so I wanted to see if you could kind of expand a little bit about how this crisis isn't just a crisis of one ideology or the other, but it's actually affecting all of us, and it's weakening in many ways our ability for civil discourse on contentious issues. I just wanted to see if you could speak to kind of how this is affecting all of us kind of throughout our society. Yeah, I'd love to, because as you say, well, there are really two things that people most commonly blame. One is, of course, the other side, and the other is social media, the bright, shiny new object that we're all obsessed with. And there's something to both of those things, but the underlying cause is human nature. We are not, as a species, wired to be very good at figuring out abstract truths. We're really good at stuff like, you know, is that a lion in the bushes or just a breeze? Or where is the next tribe camped? Or where are the water sources? Things where we get immediate feedback and it's really important to us personally. But say you have an abstract question like which God will bring us rain? Or what is the cause of the disease that is killing our children? Well, in those cases, we tend to come up with stuff. It's, it's that woman. She hexed us. Kill her. Or it's the other person's religion. It's a false God. Kill them. And for 200,000 years, that's pretty much how we did it. We have a lot of very deep cognitive flaws, which, which helped us in the evolutionary environment, but hurt us today. Things like my side bias, strong tendency to want to reinforce what we already believe, also called confirmation bias, conformity bias. We're not even aware of it, but we are little consensus machines with kind of antennae that are very sensitive. What do the people around me in my group believe? And we will harmonize not only our opinions, but even our perceptions to match what people around us think without even realizing it. And those things make it just very easy to go down these cognitive rabbit holes of false belief where we're confirming each other's biases and uh, entering echo chambers um, and splitting into competing tribes and sects with different authoritarian leaders and settling disputes by going to war, killing each other, staying obscure. 
and oppressed and ignorant. And that's, you know, as I say, that's the first 200,000 years. And the question isn't why that does happen. It's why it ever doesn't happen. The surprise is when human beings are able to cooperate to make knowledge. And to cut to the chase, the reason for that is the constitution of knowledge. Yeah, it seems like, especially in a lot of the conversations surrounding, as you mentioned, we often blame social media uh, for the rise of disinformation and conspiracy theories and cancel culture, etc. But you illustrate in the book that it's this toxicity that exists in kind of our media environment, whether it's social media or mass media, etc., has been around for quite a while. And you actually help us to understand that a lot of these issues aren't really new per se, uh, that even before the rise of Twitter and Facebook and social media and TikTok, et cetera, is that these things had been around for a number of years, but they were in many ways inflamed with the ubiquity and the access that we have to technology. Can you speak to a little bit about some of the historical context of these issues and some of the ways that we saw them in our society pre-digital? So there's, uh, you're right, there's nothing new fundamentally about what's happening today because the technologies to exploit human cognitive flaws for political gain or for profit, they are as old as the hills. And they've been used by dictators and demagogues and, of course, advertisers, propagandists have, have used these. Alexis de Tocqueville, still the, the greatest observer of the American scene, comes to the United States in 1835. And he sees and describes what today, of course, he didn't have this term, but what today we call cancel culture. And he writes that the biggest threat to liberty in the United States is not any activity of the government. It's what we now call canceling. It's the use of social pressure to embarrass, shame people, deny them a livelihood, kick them out of polite society if they don't conform. And he saw that as a major problem in the 1830s, the age of Andrew Jackson. John Stuart Mill, 1859, his great classic, free speech classic as we think about it, has a whole chapter saying that the biggest threat to freedom of speech in England at that time is not the government, it's this conformist culture that's using social pressure to squash individuality. He says that's going to cost us a lot of knowledge because you need eccentric people in order to have genius and new ideas. So we look around today and we see social media. Well, that's, that's a great tool if you want to organize a mob very quickly to, I don't know, deplatform Jonathan Rausch or Jason Thacker or someone else. But it's only a tool and it's only the newest tool. And people were very capable of doing this back in the 1830s. So, so what I always tell people is, yeah, social media is an issue, no question. But we also have to walk and chew gum. We have to realize that if Facebook went away tomorrow, a lot of these problems would still be there. They may not be quite as severe. They might take different forms. But we have to look at the fundamental technologies of the human mind and human society, which are the deeper drivers of disinformation. One of the things that you do in the book that I found really helpful is that you, you mentioned you're not an alarmist. I mean, you read through this book, and it's quite clear that you're not an alarmist. But you say you write this book in the spirit of hope and of guarded optimism. Why is that the case? And why, as you kind of mentioned earlier, is a robust doctrine of free expression so crucial for our digital public square today? I'm a bit of an alarmist, actually, and more actually than when I finished the book, which was about a year ago. What I didn't know when I was writing the book was that the most audacious 
and successful disinformation campaign ever waged against the American public would take place would be waged not by a hostile foreign power, but by Americans against other Americans. And that this campaign, sometimes known as Stop the Steal, would persuade a solid majority, two-thirds or so, of American Republicans, completely falsely, that the 2020 election was stolen, that America is no longer a democracy, and even persuaded large numbers of independents that will never actually know who won the 2020 election. This was the weaponization, the adaptation, and application of Russian-style mass disinformation tactics to American politics. Now, the MAGA movement and Donald Trump had been doing that for four years, but not on this scale and not with this success. So yeah, now I am pretty alarmed about that because using mass disinformation on that scale goes to the heart of our ability to govern ourselves as a free people. I'm also more worried than I was about some of the elements of chilling and cancel culture. But all of that said, these are not the worst threats that the Constitution of Knowledge has ever faced. You know, they're serious. But the development of the printing press caused mass disinformation crisis and huge waves of warfare and killing all across Europe. The development of offset printing and the business model of the penny press led to an American media scene in the 19th century that was a cesspool of hyper-partisanship and fake news. Uh, and there are other cases, TV, radio. We got through those because we didn't accept them. We built institutions, social guardrails and guidelines and norms and templates to detoxify the information environment and help guide us to behave better. And we're now seeing that kind of response start to form. We're seeing social media companies getting more focused on cleaning up their environments of toxic falsehood. We're seeing media, American medias, become much better at covering disinformation. They now, bigger outlets, have reporters who actually cover it. They're providing context when stuff is suspicious, like Hunter Biden's hard drive, quote-unquote, which had all the earmarks of a classic Russian-style disinformation drop. We're seeing civil society is starting to push back against cancel culture and even some state legislatures. We're seeing groups like Braver Angels, which I'm associated with, which are working on the, on the problem of, of polarization, extreme hyper-partisanship. The less polarized we are, the less vulnerable we're going to be to propaganda. So we're starting to see the beginning of the counter-organization. And to me, Jason, I don't say I'm an optimist, but I'm hopeful because if we play our cards right, if we continue to develop all these multi-level social responses, then yeah, I think we win this battle, hands down. But we have to play our cards right. We have to push back. We can't assume that free speech alone is enough, which gets to your second question. I'm sorry I've gone on for so long. Should we talk about free speech as a, as a key element of that? Oh, yeah. I think that's one of the things that earlier this year we actually had David French on right after the riot at the United States Capitol. Um, we were talking and kind of evaluating not only the role of social media and misinformation and that the riot at the Capitol, but also kind of in the in the midst of this kind of toxic environment that we function in. So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts, especially on the role of free expression um, in a lot of these debates and conversations that we're having today. Well, I have written and argued ceaselessly as an advocate of of robust free expression. 
I was born canceled, triple canceled, because I'm an atheist, homosexual Jew. And the reason someone like me can even be alive in civil society is because of the free speech of the many people who went before me and made the case for why toleration for people like me was important. And so I bow to no one in my advocacy of free speech. It gives us the raw material, the ideas, the hypotheses that we can then convert into knowledge by checking them for error. And attempts to control free speech using sort of central authorities, dictators, for example, or priests or politburos or princes or whoever it may be, invariably wind up serving themselves instead of the dispassionate public search for knowledge. But here's why I wrote this new book. It turns out free speech is not enough. You need three things if you want a society that can make knowledge productively and peacefully. First, you've, you've got to have freedom of speech. That's your input. That's your raw material. Can't function without it. But secondly, you, you need the discipline of fact. And that's what goes on at, I'm a journalist, newsrooms, where you have fact checkers, editors, people saying, have you really checked this? People deciding if it's important enough to share and spread. It's the peer review process. It's the scientific conferences. It's the training that you're undergoing as a PhD candidate and how to think and how to screen ideas. That's the discipline of fact. And that's saying, no, you can't just claim that revelation or instinct or preference decides what goes in the textbooks. You're going to have to do some stuff. You're going to have to expose your ideas to public criticism and debate. And at the end of the day, you'll have to abide by that result. And that's really, really hard, but that's what the Constitution of Knowledge does. It's like the U.S. Constitution, which says if, if you want to make public policy and law, you've got to go through a whole bunch of processes and institutions. You've got to compromise. Well, the Constitution of Knowledge says the same thing. If you want to make knowledge, you're going to have to go through a bunch of processes, and it's going to be rigorous, and you're going to have to persuade people, including many total strangers around the world. And then there's a third thing you need, and that's viewpoint diversity. If everyone in the same room has the same ideas and opinions, even in principle, they can't do science because they will not have the ability to spot their own biases. You've got to have a variety of biases. You've got to pit biases against biases in order to find knowledge. And so when you see these efforts in places like university campuses to squelch viewpoint diversity, say on grounds that someone may feel endangered if there are other points of view, that is anti-scientific. That is anti-truth. You cannot learn in an environment like that. So you need all three of those things, but it begins with freedom of speech. Yeah, we, um, one of the, some of those points is actually really interesting to me because they highlight a lot of what Richard John Newhouse wrote, uh, the late Newhouse, when he wrote in The Naked Public Square. It's very similar, is that there has to be a robust understanding of compromise and toleration, and what he argued for a principled pluralism when we're engaging a lot of these issues, especially allowing people of faith to live out their faith publicly and to be involved in the conversations that we have in public. One of the things that I wanted to ask you specifically about was often, especially with a lot of these conversations surrounding misinformation and conspiracy theories, et cetera, we hear of this idea that we shouldn't validate or engage trolls online or conspiracy theorists or those who are kind of bent on sowing this kind of social discord. Because when you validate or when you highlight or engage, you often 
do exactly what they want, which is actually validating their identities and helping to further spread these lies because you're bringing them a bigger platform. And one of the questions I want to ask you was, in your opinion, when does the prominence of fringe narratives across the ideological perspective on the left and the right prompt us to engage them directly, to kind of bring them out into light and to evaluate them? Or is it better, in some sense, to ignore certain types of theories? Kind of, where do you see the balance on that? Well, you can't, unfortunately, answer that question in the abstract. I really wish I could, but here's why you can't. So there are a bunch of very sophisticated weapons, epistemic weapons is how I think of them, that weaponize the vulnerabilities in human cognitive life and social life. And they include things like trolling, which is a form of attention hijacking. If I attack what's nearest and dearest to you or attack your reputation, you will feel strongly impelled to reply to that. You can't let that stand. Conspiracy bootstrapping. This is when you start floating conspiracy theories, you see what sticks once people start talking about it, you amplify it and you say, if the news media don't cover it, that they're suppressing it. And if they do cover it, of course, then they're repeating it. So either way, either type of response causes this dilemma. There's firehose of falsehood. This is what Donald Trump is, is a master at. That's where you put out so many lies, half-truths, exaggerations, and conspiracy theories so quickly through so many channels that fact-checkers, the media, the public can't keep up. They just drown in it. And there's, there's canceling. And, and so forth. That's social coercion. So the reason I mention all that is that these things, these weapons are really sophisticated, right? If you take on the troll, then you feed the troll. You amplify the troll by refuting the troll. If, however, you ignore the troll or the conspiracy theorist, you risk seeming to validate what they say and letting it go, letting it spread unopposed. In a, in a liberal democracy, like ours, the only really good way and consistent way to fight these powerful cognitive weapons is not to deploy them in the first place. And actually, that's what we did since basically the 1860s until Donald Trump and the MAGA movement came along and adapted Russian-style disinformation and applied it to the U.S. So now we've got it. The cat's out of the bag or the virus is among us. You can't make it go away. So the answer has to be you develop resistance and resilience. But that means there's no cookie cutter model. You're going to have to look at these conspiracy theories and these trolls and try to nip them in the bud, try to do early fact checking, try to figure out how the networks work that are spreading and distributing this stuff, uh, alert social media to it. You're also going to have to make case-by-case -case decisions about whether to engage the trolls or just not feed them. Unfortunately, if the troll happens to be the president of the United States, who has himself embraced the label that he's a troll, then you can't ignore the troll, right? So that's kind of the mess we're in, that we don't have a formulaic answer. We're going to have to figure this out on the fly. Well, one of the conversations that I, I see is pretty predominant, and years ago it was called the tech lash, is that we had these years of technology and in many ways could do no wrong. Social media was this huge democratizing kind of force, and a lot of those things are true, but often we glossed over some of the negative effects. And so whether it's on the political left or on the political right, 
we're seeing this moniker of big tech or a handful of extremely influential technology companies that are playing in many ways a pretty significant role in our epistemic crisis. And it seems like a lot of these companies are in the crosshairs of, as, as I said, is both the political left and right, but for very different reasons. And so in your opinion, what is the role that you see these technologies companies playing? And do you see any issues with the way that they're going about content moderation, uh, specifically about limiting certain types of speech on their platforms? Well, they don't have a choice about limiting certain types of speech. We know, for example, that they can't and won't disseminate, for example, child pornography. We know that if they become a toxic epistemic environment that's full of lies and, you know, on, on election week, they're disseminating stuff that says, don't forget to vote on November 4th to African-American voters when, in fact, election day is November 3rd. You know they can't tolerate that. And we also know since day one, they have not been unfiltered. They have used often complex algorithms to decide what to uprank and what to downrank and what goes and what doesn't goes. So what they've been doing is aggregating a lot of content and making selections in how to play that content in order to aggregate eyeballs and sell those eyeballs to advertisers. And we have a word for that in English. It's called publishing. So from day one, they've been making content decisions and I believe that they have no choice, just as a matter of business survival, as well as a matter of citizenship, to trying to make better rather than worse content decisions, meaning decisions that are pro-social rather than anti-social and decisions that are pro-truth rather than anti-truth. Okay, so I can say that. That's really hard to do. Someone's going to complain about it, no matter what they do. It's a really, really hard problem. It's not, however, an escapable problem. We can't just say free speech online, no content moderation, anything goes, because then you get a self-destructive, toxic environment. That's why we have the Constitution of Knowledge in the first place, to set some, some social guidelines and, and guardrails uh, so that complete antisocial chaos wouldn't prevail. I think that there are ways to do this, that by this I mean um, improving the, the epistemic environment, the pro-truth environment online that are a lot more subtle than just kicking people off or saying, you can say this, you can't say that. I don't actually think that kind of cherry-picking approach will ever work. And it's going to have more to do with, with changing the way these platforms are structured and operate so that the incentives go more to our more thoughtful side. For example, it should not be the case that when Jason Thacker gets mad at someone, he tweets out something intemperate and it's immediately published irretrievably worldwide that second. There's no reason Jason couldn't be asked to wait two hours before his tweet goes live, or his tweet could be shown to his personal editors, two friends, who automatically see it and let him know if it's going to cost him his job. So that platform doesn't have to cater to impulsivity that way. Twitter has already started a program where if you try to retweet a link that you haven't read, you'll, you'll get it. It's called an interstitial warning that says, do you want to read this first? And that actually turns out to be pretty effective at just slowing people down just enough so you introduce some friction, some thoughtfulness, you engage what's called their, their type two system of thinking. Facebook's got an oversight board, which is starting to look at ways to create institutional standards that are more transparent and more systematic. All of the platforms are looking at ways to amplify and elevate stuff that's fact-checked. Doesn't mean you ban stuff that isn't, 
but you make choices about where things appear. And I could go on, but a lot of this is backstage stuff like the constitution of knowledge that we don't have to think about because when it works, it kind of nudges us, it guides us toward making better choices. And I think that's the direction that ultimately we're going to wind up going. And I think maybe cross your fingers are starting to go. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree. One of the things that I was honored to be able to be part of uh, over the last few years is the initial conversation surrounding the oversight board and being able to speak into those, be in the room as the decisions are being made, and also to be able to speak into some of the policy decisions that a lot of these social media companies, to, as you said, to bring that diversity of thought. Because often uh, some of these companies are not hearing from a lot of religious people uh, or even specifically Southern Baptists or even evangelicals. Um, on how to navigate some of these things. And so I, I agree with you totally is that we don't want to live and no one actually wants to have no content moderation online because we wouldn't want to be on these platforms. They would be so toxic and vile and disgusting that no one would want to use them. And then it, you come down to what is the appropriate level of content moderation. And those are some of the conversations that I'm glad to see that people are starting to have. Yeah. And they're getting more sophisticated and um very happy that you were consulted in some of those early conversations. And, you know, it's very easy to be cynical about Facebook. And, you know, God knows they've, they've done some things which don't look very good. But we need to remember that, you know, I, I, I spoke earlier of how, how bad American journalism was in the 19th century. We just took this for granted. You couldn't believe what was in the newspapers. You know, people would just make stuff up and put it in the newspaper. So how did we get out of that? Well, it became a toxic environment for readers. It became a threat to the business model. And people began getting together. And in the early part of the 20th century, they start the American Society of Newspaper Editors, which first thing it does is start promulgating some standards, professional standards, like don't make stuff up and run a correction if you're wrong and talk to people before you write stuff about them. It seems obvious, but someone had to invent it. And they set up journalism schools around 100 years ago, which started inculcating these norms. And they set up prizes like the Pulitzer, which gave people incentives to follow the rules. And they began translating, shifting the journalism model away from the toxic model and toward the model of real news. And as they did that, the audiences migrated to that same preference. They liked that better and a business model developed around that. And it worked for a long time until social media. And so when I look at something like the Facebook Oversight Board, I don't know that it will work, but I know that it is the kind of thing that has worked. And so that's why I'm not cynical about it. Yeah, one of the things that I, as we kind of round out our conversation, uh, kind of two big uh, issues really stuck out to me as I was reading your, uh, your really well-done book is that you focus on, you have an entire chapter focused on cancel culture that you describe as despotism for the few or of the few as well as a whole section on hate speech. And I know you've written about that, especially in Kindly Inquisitors, and you kind of expand on that in light of some of the new issues and kind of tools that we're using to navigate that, and specifically highlighting the rise of emotional safetyism from Height's book and Lukianoff, et cetera. I wanted to see if you, if you could expand on one or two of those ideas a little bit about the rise of cancel culture as well as the rise of emotional safetyism as it relates to our digital culture? I know that's a pretty hefty question, but just kind of any kind of ideas to help us dig into some of those issues a little bit better. Yeah, Jason Thacker does not go for the, the small softball questions. They're too big, so I'm going to, maybe I hope I'm not doing too much of this, but, but I'm going to sort of go up to the 10,000-foot level just for a minute before going 
going back down to talking about safetyism and cancel culture. So I think the two big contributions of this book, the reasons it's going to last, you know, a million years and when the sun burns down to an ember, the last cockroaches will be, you know, crawling over the cover of my book. Anyway, the two ideas are first that we do have a constitution of knowledge. It's not just a marketplace of ideas. It's unstructured. It's not just free speech. It's this whole system of of institutions and norms and and guardrails and that keep us honest. And then the second idea is that you're being manipulated and that all the things that we've been talking about, they may be used for very different goals. What, what Trump and MAGA are doing, for example, with Russian-style disinformation is very different from what, say, campus hardcore left-wing activists are doing with investigations and canceling and deplatforming. But they have the same goal, which is to manipulate, organize and manipulate the information and media environments for political advantage. And there are lots of ways to do that. And the the core insight that I want to get people to focus on here is that these are tools that anyone can use. So what are they? Well, it turns out that one of them, that actually small groups of people numerically, surprisingly small, can effectively manipulate a much larger population in terms of belief by creating a false consensus. And that's what cancelers are out to do. Because if they can silence a majority with a particular point of view, then we look around, we have the wrong idea about what people around us think, we get disoriented, we get confused, we begin to think that this minority speaks for the majority. And this can be very effective for a very long time. It's, It's how Soviet communism worked, actually. Very few people actually believed in it, but they couldn't tell what other people believed. Well, it turns out one tool for doing that if you want to, uh, to shut down a broader debate or to stigmatize it or inhibit it, is to say, well, you know, if what Jason Thacker is saying, his beliefs hurt me. They make me unsafe or they make me feel unsafe. Well, that turns out, if you, if you take that argument to its logical conclusion, which many people do, that means that I get to decide what anyone else in the room gets to say or hear, which is dangerous amount of power to give, but it also makes it pretty easy to spoof consensus. So once you get into the zone of emotional safetyism, you get into very quickly a very manipulated epistemic environment. It's hard to know what people think. It's hard to know where truth is. It's hard to know what you can say. You never know where the boundaries are because someone might feel unsafe. And unfortunately, we see a lot of that in a lot of contexts today, including some universities, often online. And as you mentioned, there's, there's a whole bunch in the book about canceling and about emotional safetyism and arguing that even though they're, they're very often well-intended, I don't question that, and they're used by people who think they're making society better, that we really should view these as tools of information warfare, and we really should oppose them if we're supporters of the constitution of knowledge. Yeah, I, I highly recommend those sections of the book. They were really eye-opening to me and challenged me to kind of think through some of those issues because especially as a, as a Christian conservative, as I navigate a lot of these things, obviously I'm concerned about the rise of hate speech and emotional safetyism, but to be pushed and challenged to think better about them. And that's something that I really appreciate about your whole book is that you, while I don't, as we said, we don't agree on every single issue, 
you nevertheless helped to push me to and challenge me in some of my beliefs and help me to think better. And so just for that, I wanted to say thank you. Um, but as we end our time together, I want I always ask the same question uh, for guests, which is, what are a couple resources that you would encourage listeners to read or to check out if they want to dig a little bit deeper into some of the issues we've talked about today, especially this epistemic crisis that we're facing in the digital public square? Well, there's tons of good writing about around this. So I'll just mention some things maybe for the show notes. One is a book by uh, two writers named Muirhead and Rosenbaum called A Lot of People Are Saying, uh, the subtitles The Rise of the New Conspiracism. And that's a really good guidebook to some of the tactics that are being used to manipulate us. Another is a Rand Corporation report called, cleverly enough, Truth Decay, which is also an excellent short summary of what we're up against in these new forms of information warfare. There's a philosopher, a writer uh, named Lee McIntyre, who's written three, really anything by him on this is good and very readable. But he's, he's written three books that are relevant. One is called Post-Truth, another is called The Scientific Attitude. And the third, his latest is, I think it's called How to Talk to a Science Denier. And any one of them, or really anything by Lee McIntyre, has been formative in my thinking about what are these tools and weapons that are being used to manipulate and, and silence and confuse us, and how do we stand up to them? Uh, we already mentioned John Stuart Mill, the, in a way, uh, his classic on liberty. We think of it as a free speech book, and it is. That's chapter two, the most famous chapter. But everyone should go back now and read chapter three. That's the chapter that gets overlooked. And that's the, that's the chapter on cancel culture. He doesn't name it. But that's where he talks about how liberty, real liberty, social liberty, the ability to think clearly, to have robust debates and find knowledge, how that's endangered, not just by government, not even primarily by government, but by a censorious culture. Super important, more relevant maybe than it has been in 100 years. And then finally, I want to mention an organization which is doing some super important work. I mentioned earlier that the part of hardening ourselves against manipulation and propaganda is to reduce polarization, because polarization and propagandization, they're, they're the Bobsy twins. The more polarized you can make a society, the more it's going to be open to radical propaganda about, you know, the other side is out to get you. And the more you can propagandize a society, the more you divide it and polarize it. So how do we reverse those spirals? Well, it turns out we can through social efforts, civic efforts of our own. Braver Angels is a national grassroots depolarizing movement. I was on the board at one point, no longer am, active in all 50 states, all volunteers, debates, workshops. The common goal is to get people across the blue-red divide, equal numbers of each, to relearn how to establish links of communication. It's not about persuading anybody. It's not even about finding common ground. It's just about relearning those civic connections that we used to have, you know, in the barbershop or wherever people met. And people come away from all of these programs with the most, the most common response is we are not as divided as we've been led to believe, which, by the way, is true. So I'd urge people to go look at braverangels.org because it's actually doing the work on the ground of making us more resistant to polarization and propagandization. Now, those are all really helpful, and we'll make sure to link to those in the show notes for folks if they want to go check out those books and resources. But Jonathan, I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciated this conversation. Obviously, there's so much more that we can unpack, but I appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Digital Public Square. 
Well, I'm honored to be here with you, and I'm especially grateful to be able to, to talk to your audience. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Jonathan and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.